Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. And there's a co-host that suits me, and he joins <laughs> me remotely right now. Joe Olfon, what's going on? Preposterous segue, um, <laughs> but I'm happy to be joining you. All right, let's get right into it because there is definitely enough to talk about with how insane the playoffs have been at the NBA campus so far. And before we get into any other, I mean, I say all that and yesterday Steve Nash got a four-year deal to be the head coach of a team that's going to be, uh, at least in their own mind, a championship contender next season. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But before we get into any of that, uh, we'd be remiss if we don't tip this podcast off talking about what will be undoubtedly like one of the craziest finishes to a playoff game you'll ever see in your life no matter how old you are right now and that is game three Raptors Celtics Boston takes the lead with 0.5 seconds left after a bit of a Raptors defensive breakdown that you know due in part to just like the threat of Kemba's pull-up game Siakam I believe leaves Tice under the basket to essentially triple team Kemba Kemba drops just a brilliant dime to Tice, who dunks it with 0.5 seconds left. Boston's up two. Raptors' championship reign is essentially over. They're going down 3-0. And what happens next, I mean, is almost indescribable. Six-foot Kyle Lowry throws a 50-foot overhead soccer throw-in style pass across the entire width of the court over the outstretched arms of 7-foot-5 Taco Fall. The ball lofts perfectly and drops perfectly into OG Ananobi's shooting pocket on the weak side corner, which the Celtics have randomly abandoned. Well, and not really random. They 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 actually play that zone on like on all of those end of game scenarios when they're trying to prevent a three. Like that's pretty much always what they do. It's a, it's a strange concept to me. I think in this particular case, with 0.5 seconds left, Brad Stevens might have outthought himself a little bit. If someone had given me 10 options for how the Celtics were going to come out, and to your credit, okay, fair enough, that they usually defend those late game out-of-bounds plays with a zone, but if if someone had told me, like, here are like 10 options that the Celtics will use to defend this play with 0.5 seconds left up to, zone is not one of the things I thought would be one of them. And then, yeah, I mean, just the miscommunication between Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, lets OG Ananobi sneak along the baseline to the weak side corner, catches that 50-foot pass that Kyle Lowry threw overhead over the outstretched arms of 7'5", Taco Fall, and drains uh, what's going to be quickly become an iconic game-winning buzzer beater in Toronto, and then, quite frankly, acts not only like he's been here before and done it before, but that he really doesn't give a rat's ass that he's done it calmly walks off the court the only thing OG Ananobi had to say about it after the game was that it was cool that he shoots expecting to score which is why he didn't celebrate and also that the only thing he had to say was uh someone hurt his nose in the melee so yeah thoughts on a finish an indescribable finish that I tried to describe and thoughts on game three and this series so far because we did not talk about it uh last episode yeah, I mean, I think this is, I, I expected this to be an incredibly close series. Obviously, the Celtics came out and laid the smackdown in game one. And what I thought was, like, they played fantastic. It was an air, uncharacteristically poor performance from the Raptors, I thought. And then the last two games have been just, you know, back and forth seesaw battles that really could have gone either way. And I thought the Raptors were the better team in game two and should have won that game, but for you know, a, a cold offensive spell for them and a ridiculous shooting stretch for Marcus Smart. And then I, I frankly thought the Celtics were the better team for most of game three and probably should have won that game. But the Raptors essentially kept it close enough on the strength, you know, almost entirely of Kyle Lowry, who was just barreling into the lane. Uh, he goes 11 for 15 in this game from two-point range, which, I mean, we've talked about Lowry this season and how he has kind of gotten back to being a downhill point guard when we thought that that part of his game had fallen by the wayside a little bit. And for so long, you know, Kyle Lowry's offensive game was bolstered by his pull-up three-point shooting. And this year, that skill, I won't say it's disappeared, but it's become basically about average. And especially in this series, a three-pointer hasn't been there for him at all. He's shooting three for 21 from deep in this series, but he's shooting 15 for 22 at the rim. The only player in the conference semis who is getting as many baskets per game 
in the restricted area as Kyle Lowry is Giannis Antetokounmpo. And Lowry, he, he in the pick and roll, he just absolutely could not be stopped in this game. And he willed himself to the rim and kept the Raptors in the game for long enough to give them a chance. Um, you mentioned that play that Kemba made, you know, to put the Celtics up by two points with 0.5 seconds left. I, I Siakam, I think, wasn't going to triple team Kemba. I think he was jumping out because Jalen Brown was open above the break. The Raptors had two on the ball, um, obviously, to take away Kemba's pull up. And Kemba just unbelievably patiently uh, is able to kind of snake through, zigzag, gets back to his strong hand after the Raptors force him left. And with essentially a defense collapsing on him, Jalen Brown is open and Tice who is, you know, nominally being guarded by Siakam because Gasol has gone to double the ball, is sneaking baseline. And I think it was a bit of a misread by Pascal to to essentially lunge out toward Jalen Brown when Tice was behind him. I think at that point, like, you got to just prevent against the dunk and force the Celtics to shoot the jump shot potentially to win the game, especially with that little time on the clock. Also, I think that's just in real time a really difficult decision to make. And I think Kemba completely forced that breakdown with his patience. And for him to exhibit that kind of patience where he's just waiting and waiting and stringing the Raptors along until something opens up, uh, the the calmness with which he did that before making what was a really nice wraparound pass to Tice for that dunk, I thought that was brilliantly executed by Kemba yeah. Walker. And that really should be... The like that should be the game winning pass we're talking about today, that yeah. essentially all but ended the Raptors championship reign. And again, uh, simply because Kyle Lowry threw a honestly, that's like a even from a Hall of Fame point guard, that's essentially a once in a lifetime pass. Like that is unbelievable. And and because of that, and obviously because of OG, you know the guy's got to make the shot. So credit to him and credit to OG on what's been honestly a tremendous series for him so far. Lowry was unbelievable in game three, but OG has been the Raptors best overall player in this series and is really kind of like teasing the the potential, the two-way potential he's got and maybe even a higher offensive ceiling than than some of us envisioned for him. But yeah, Kemba's pass should be the one we're talking about today. If not for just, you know, this like once in a generation moment that Lowry, OG and the Raptors pull off. Lowry's performance as a whole, like you mentioned him becoming more of a downhill point guard again this year. There was a point late in the game, the Celtics had gone on an 8-0 run and were up four with under two minutes to go. And the Raptors could not get anything going. I believe they had gone almost four minutes without scoring and could not penetrate the Celtics defense. It was literally just two FU Lowry drives of like, you're not stopping me. I'm getting to the rim that, you know, it, it seems like a special breed of player can do that when they want. And it was those two drives, plus the Lowry pass to OG, obviously, that end up being the deciding factor. But it just, like, you never, especially in our position when, you know, as we've said before, we're here to provide context. Like, you never just want to boil it down to, like, this guy just wants it more. But, man, sometimes it's hard to watch Kyle Lowry and not just think some, the difference is this guy wants it more. Again, you just, the two drives I'm talking about in the final two minutes when no other Raptor could seemingly penetrate that defense. His overall game, I mean, he mentioned... Uh, that before game three, he got a text from a close friend uh, saying, stop waiting. And, and so he just decides to come out. And over the first five minutes of the game, matches the Celtics scoring. It was through five minutes of the game, if you just took Kyle Lowry scoring, the game was 10-10. Uh, he scored or assisted on 15 of the Raptors' first 19 points. He ends up with a game-high 31 points on 13 of 23 shooting. A game-high eight assists. As I wrote in a piece about Kyle's performance this morning, he grabbed as many total rebounds as Toronto's starting center and grabbed as many offensive rebounds as anyone else on the court in this game. He, at various points in the game, guarded all of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Kemba Walker. And he played 46 minutes and 29 seconds. The most any player has played in a regulation game all damn season. And he finishes it with just a glorious half second standing out of bounds on an inbounds play. Like, what else is there to say about the guy? Yeah, and I don't want to make this transition just yet. I know I know where we, you're going. I know where you're going. something we can return to. When your team is up against a wall, it's a must-win game, and you know who your best player is, pretty clearly the move is to play that player as many minutes as you possibly can. And even, you know, when that player happens to be 34 years old, apparently that's the right decision, you know? 
let alone when your player is 25 and the MVP of the league. Kyle Lowry. We'll circle back to that. I was going to say, Kyle Lowry at 34 years old in season number 14 with all these miles on his body, coming into this series with a sprained ankle and getting a Brad Wanamaker knee, not even to the groin, through the groin. That's how vicious that knee was. Still able to play 46-29. And the 25-year-old MVP is being managed with childproof gloves. I just, I can't even. I think my favorite stat from this game might be Taco Fall being a minus three in 0.5 seconds yeah. of action. Amazing. Yo, also, um, Taco Fall jump, dude. Can, can, can Taco I, Fall jump? Pro- probably not. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think so. Like, if he jumps, that's, that's probably three nothing Celtics. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, another th- like, and this is why I'm saying that I feel like Brad Stevens maybe just outsmarted himself a bit on that last possession. It's like, yeah, I know that, like, that is how they like to play, especially when they're up three, they go to that zone to essentially just force a team like you know we saw it happen i think in one of the seeding games against the blazers where it's like they just have the three-point line covered and the blazers wound up they they couldn't get anything and they wound up just getting a two-pointer at the buzzer (laughs) even though they were down three with 0.5 seconds left it's like you don't even really like i understand wanting to make the pass difficult but if you just if you have an extra rover out there and have like five defenders covering four guys, like you can make it really difficult for the Raptors to get a shot off. And I don't think really guarding the inbounder is as important in that situation. Guarding and, the inbounder to me makes sense if all you're worried about is a lob. Like if it's like you're up two or one and there's maybe 0. 0.3 or 0. 0.4 and you're worried about the lob, then it makes sense. You're guarding the inbounder. Don't let him right. get a clear. But even case, then, like if you're worried about the lob and you want Taco Fall on the floor true, for that last possession. Put him in front of the bucket, yeah. Um, but I think, and, and like you saw the issue with it, right? Like even, so the Celtics overload the strong side when they're playing that zone, which makes a certain amount of sense. Like the, the first option was for Fred Van Vliet who cut toward the sideline. They couldn't get a pass to him. Section, second option was for Pascal who comes off a down screen up to the top. Marcus Smart jumps on that. And like, this is where the miscommunication happened is that Jalen Brown was also focused on Siakam and they completely lose track of OG in the weak side corner. And in that situation, like even if the Raptors managed to get the ball into Van Vliet or Siakam, both of those guys, their momentum was carrying them away from the basket. And in that situation, like with, with their momentum going that way, like I don't even know if they're able to get a shot off in 0.5, to be honest, like let alone to hit it. The only way I think that like the Raptors are actually in position to hit that shot is if a guy can hit a set shot. And that was like, I think the one thing that the Celtics really should have been guarding against. And the fact that they gave up like a catch and shoot three, obviously the pass is what makes that possible. But the fact is OG Ananobi is wide open in that corner. And, and I think it was a mistake just like with 0.5 seconds left, not to just play a standard man and potentially even not guard the inbounder and try and play it like five on four. Like I, I understand why the Celtics typically do go to that zone in in late game scenarios when they're trying to protect the lead, whether you know whether it's a two point lead or a three point lead, and just prevent the other team from getting a three off. But they were sort of hoisted on their own petard in this case. Yeah, and I mean, you you want to talk about Brad Stevens maybe out coaching himself a little bit? What was with those canter minutes? Robert Williams, who's having a great series, first mm-hmm. of all, time lord for the Celtics, had kind of like tweaked his back, I think in game two, maybe game one. And so I assumed, oh, he must be hurt. He can't come back into the game because as I even tweeted, Brad Stevens is not the kind of coach to get cute or comfortable just because he's up, you know, 10 points in a game three that he's up to nothing in the series. Like that guy, like most great coaches, coaches every possession as if like they need to win it. So to then see... Williams come back in the game after a few whatever it was four or five minutes of canter and the Raptors dominated those four or five minutes of canter because they just attacked them in pick and rolls for the entirety of those four or five minutes it just didn't make sense to me like I, I get that you can look back and say it's four minutes you know he's played four minutes all series maybe they're just throwing him a bone try to keep him engaged they might need him later in the playoff room what I just don't think it was necessary and to me that was an example of like you you just didn't have to do that you know, and, and again, I don't know, maybe maybe they weren't going to put Williams back in the game. And, and then maybe because of how bad those canter minutes went, that's why he came back. But yeah, in a series that I think otherwise Brad Stevens has, you know, coached masterfully. Yeah. Uh, the, the canter decision just really kind of boggled my mind. Yeah. And they, they lost those four minutes by four points, which, you know, in a one point loss, 
kind of makes a big difference. And I think Steven said afterwards that he was going to Cantor because the, the Celtics were struggling with the Raptors zone and they thought Cantor would have a chance to bust it with his offensive rebounding and his ability to just get in, in the middle of that zone and score, which he did. But he gave it all back and then some at the other end. And like you said, the Raptors attacked him every single time in pick and roll. Credit to Lowry and Van Vliet both, who... Uh, just were masterful, like attacking him in the pick and roll. Lowry hit a couple of mid-range jumpers. Van Vliet burned him on a drive. Um, and then the Celtics basically started bringing Cantor up higher in the pick and roll. And Lowry, you know, the and like Serge Ibaka as well, who deserves credit for this, like immediately adjusted. Uh, Ibaka slips into space on the short roll. Lowry hits him. Ibaka finds Siakam cutting along the baseline. And it didn't really matter like what the Celtics did. They could not protect Cantor Um from just getting diced up. So I don't know what the deal is with Robert Williams or, or why he didn't play in those minutes. Like you mentioned, I don't know if it was his back or his hip, but he took a hard fall in game two. And that was like ostensibly, I guess, why he wasn't playing in that spot. And I'm not saying that like maybe he wasn't feeling right and couldn't go in the game, but it does seem sort of, I mean, it was just funny that like when they finally did bring him into the game, he had a massive dunk within like 10 seconds of coming in. So whatever was physically ailing him didn't seem to prevent him from continuing to do damage against the Raptors because they frankly just like don't have any bigs with the athleticism to keep up with him. I mean, maybe we should, we should probably give a shout out to OG Ananobi at some point here. Yeah. 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 Well, that, well that's what I was saying. You know, like while Larry saved their butts uh, yesterday and OG did as well, like OG's been their best overall player in this series and I think maybe you coming in were a little higher on OG's offensive ceiling than I was you know I still thought OG could be an impact player for years I think the guy's got like defensive player of the year potential which is not easy when you're a wing player but I I think he's that good defensively I'm not sure I saw this kind of offensive potential from him and I don't just mean the shooting because I did think he can be a a really good three and D player, but he's showing a willingness. Um, and quite frankly, even a bit of the skill set now necessary to attack mismatches when, you know, like OG, I don't know, he's never going to be a, a team's first offensive option, probably never a second offensive option. But if OG and is like an elite three and D player who you can also count on to get points out of mismatches when you dump it down to him and, and who has the skill set and the footwork to get points out of like that. Now you're starting to talk about a pretty damn complete player. I, I just thought he played an unbelievable game, like even before he hit that shot. Um, and he was incredible in game two as well. He was the Raptors' leading scorer in that game. He shot the ball extremely well in this series. But also, I think, you know, he's flashed uh, a certain in-between skill set that he hadn't flashed, like, certainly not up to this season. He showed a bit of it during the regular season, but I think he's definitely taken it to another level in the bubble. He's, he's really showing an ability to put the ball on the floor and not just like attack in a straight line. You know, he's shown like he has that spin move in his bag. Uh, he's shown a couple pretty nice crossovers and shown sort of an ability to like move side to side with the ball uh, and keep a defense on its toes. And if he's like attacking off of the catch against a scrambled defense, he is usually able to get to the rim. And the fact that he has become such a reliable shooter is just going to make it that much easier for him because defenses really, I think, are going to have to pay attention to him, close out hard on him. And that's just going to open up that much more of his dribble drive game. And I think those two things sort of in concert, the fact that he has really refined his ball skills and that he continues to shoot the ball extremely well is going to make him a pretty well-rounded offensive player. And you, and you throw into that his defense, which has really just been magnificent. And I thought both he and Siakam, who were basically the two primaries on Tatum in this game, were incredible. Like Tatum had just a miserable time. Like he could not free himself for any clean looks in this game. And I think that's a credit to OG's on-ball defense. Like he was just fighting through screens and getting back in the play. And Tatum just like really wasn't getting any kind of breathing room. Anytime Tatum tried to go one-on-one, he just got stonewalled. And I think it's also a credit to Marc Gasol, who, you know, was asked to come up higher in those pick and rolls and take away Tatum's pull-up game and acquitted himself really, really well. And I know... Like people look at Gasol and they see that he doesn't really have the foot speed. And when he drops back, you know, he just looks kind of like one of these lumbering bigs who can't play out on the perimeter. But when the Raptors ask him to do that, he's just so smart with like the, the angles that he takes and has such a keen understanding of space and how to take it away that even like the slow foot speed doesn't prevent him from being really effective as a guy who can defend out on the floor. And honestly, like they, like the Raptors need. Marc Gasol, you know, as much as they need 
anybody right now because their defense has not looked remotely the same when he isn't in the game. Um, and and Serge Ibaka, frankly, hasn't been great defensively. So a big part of the Raptors losing game two was Gasol fouling out with. I think it was maybe a couple minutes left. Like he, their defense looks drastically different uh, with him on and and with him off. And I mean, in the regular season, it, it looked drastically different as well. But even with him off, it was still good. And now it's that's hasn't been the case so far in this series. On the offensive end, like you were tweeting about this last night, a lot of people have been lamenting this. He he's not looking to score at all. He's not even looking at the bucket when he catches the ball. And it's gotten so bad that even his playmaking uh, and his vision almost isn't even making up for that. Like it used to be that you can say he's still a fine offensive player because of his playmaking, his, like his vision, his screening. It's almost at the point now where he's irreplaceable on the defensive end and nearly unplayable on the offensive end. And yet the Raptors still need him because of how how important he is to their defense. But so it's 2-1 now. Mm-hmm. It was inches away from being 3 nothing. But, you know, if you play that game, you could also say games two and three in general were both toss-ups. So they should split them. So fair enough. It's 2-1 Boston. I believe you had Raptors in seven coming in. I had yeah. Raptors in six. Um, so do you feel differently about that? I mean, obviously it's easy to say, well, the Celtics are up, so they have the advantage. They should mm-hmm. win the series. But like how confident are you in a Raptors in seven result right now? Not tremendously confident I think there are certainly still things the Raptors can do better I mean one of them is as simple as just shoot the ball better and this was the first game in the series where they shot over 30 percent from three and they were still only at 32 percent granted the Celtics also shot the ball pretty poorly I think they were at 31 percent from three in this game Um, but it's been a real struggle for the Raptors just as far as shooting the ball and you know you mentioned Gasol who in last year's playoffs was a really important release valve for them because he was actually, you know, hitting threes at like basically 40%. And now his jump shot looks all kinds of off. He's like way too strong on every single shot. And that's part of the reason that when he catches the ball off a pitch out with like 20 feet of space, he's already looking for where he can pass it to. And, you know, until this game, Fred Van Vliet, who hit five threes in this game, had not shot the ball well at all. Like I mentioned, Lowry is three of 21 from deep. Norm Powell hadn't shot it well, finally got off the schneid in this one with a couple of threes, although uh, his defensive discipline was nowhere to be found. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they're... They can... They can still shoot the ball better. Like, I don't think Lowry is going to continue to shoot, you know, 14% from three in this series. Um, but at the same time, there is just like this built-in advantage to having your best shot creators be like six seven and six eight rather than six feet. And, 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 and also in just having like four well three guys but having that many shot creators you know having them at that size makes a difference but just having as many as the Celtics have is also just like so key in playoff basketball yeah yeah and the thing and the fact that you know Siakam in theory could be that guy for the Raptors and at points this season has been that guy I think it's pretty clear that he isn't right now and whether it's just the Celtics defense that's doing it to him or you know, the fact that he just hasn't quite come all the way back from that layoff in which he, by his own admission, like didn't touch a basketball for four months. He hasn't looked like the guy he was at, you know, at the beginning of the season when he really was this kind of off the dribble initiator who could get to the rim at will and was also hitting pull up threes left and right. His face up game has really fallen by the wayside and the Raptors have responded by trying to put him in the post and his post ups aren't really going anywhere. You know, the Celtics have all these really strong, sturdy post defenders who are giving him all kinds of problems. So it's been a bit of a challenge to find places to put him and ways to get him his offense, I think, for the Raptors. I think moving him off the ball is a good start. Like he's been way more effective scoring as an off-ball guy than an on-ball guy in this series. But like the fact is he he is like their option to essentially, okay, we need a guy like with some size who can create a basket and he hasn't been able to do it. Whereas like, you know, Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kemba obviously is like the same size as Lowry and Van Vliet, but his pull-up game has been what like much more effective in this series. Man, the dagger so, he hit over a sliding Ibaka in game two was so filthy. Yeah, his step back is, he's got one of the best step backs in the league and he's he's able to create so much separation with it, which is like the, the Raptors guards aren't able to do that, frankly. Um, and I think you really notice the difference watching the game, right? And just the Raptors have to work and work and work for their looks. And they're, they've been smart and they've been patient. And, you know, at times they've really just like had to will themselves 
uh, to the basket to generate offense, but it looks like laborious, you know? It looks like a struggle, whereas the Celtics kind of come down and it's like they run that double screen for Kemba and suddenly there's breakdowns all over the place. Um, or sometimes it's just Tatum isolating and he hits a shot anyway because he's that level of shot maker and he has the size to get his shot off o- over anybody. I think the fact that it's just the offense has come a lot more easily to the Celtics um, and, and just seeing that play out over these three games makes it hard to feel confident in the Raptors coming back to win this thing in seven. But I certainly haven't given up on the possibility because I do think their defense is that good. I do think they can shoot better. But I think the bottom line is, like, if if they can't get Siakam going offensively, as good as I think Siakam's been defensively, and as much as I think he's found other ways to contribute, you know, with his passing, um, like, they need him to be more of a scorer and a more efficient scorer than he's been so far because Kyle Lowry is not going to be able to do this every night. Yeah. I mean, he's sure as hell not going to be able to play 46 and a half minutes every night, you know, in the other East semifinal, as we kind of poked fun at uh, 20 minutes ago, uh, they just need to force their MVP to play more than 36 and a half minutes. And actually I shouldn't even say they should force their MVP. They need to force their coach to force their MVP to play that, uh, to play that I minute. Look, we, I mean, we got into a lot of the reasons why Mike Budenholzer is a postseason fraud on our last episode. And, you know, we still have Steve Nash news and a West second round preview to get to. So I don't know how much time we need to spend on Bucks Heat, but the floor is yours because uh, after we ripped Mike Budenholzer and the Bucks for that game one performance, he might have been even worse in game two. So floor is yours. Uh, what more do you have to add after game two that we didn't already say after game one? I, I don't really have anything new to add. It's just the fact that he continued to make basically all the same mistakes. It, it's like compounding the damage. I really, like, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. You remember in the first round when they lost that game one against Orlando and, you know, Giannis played like 32 minutes and Middleton played 33? I'm like, okay, it's the magic. Yeah. He's not sweating it. Like, you know, nor should he. Uh, and if we get into, you know, later playoff rounds and he's still doing the same things, then we can come down on him. And it's like, you're down one nothing. You're getting outplayed. And you're still like, you know, he pulled Chris Middleton in the fourth quarter with like six minutes left because he picked up his fifth foul. And like, at a certain point, you got to trust your players. Like Chris Middleton is an all-star. He's probably going to be an all-NBAer this year. He is easily your second best player and probably your most important offensive player down the stretch of games. Like you need him to be creating off yeah. of the dribble. And without him in the game, it's really difficult for them to do that. Um, And they were a disaster without him on the floor in that game a couple nights ago. And you pull him with six minutes left with five five fouls. Like, you got to trust him. Like, you just have to trust him that he's not going to pick up that sixth. And if he does, he does. But, like, you can't pull him off of the floor. Leave it up to him. You know what I'm saying? Um and that was really frustrating, you know, and he also did this, like he, he pulled Middleton early because he picked up two fouls and then still gave Giannis his scheduled rest in the first quarter. So you're playing already, like you're putting yourself at a disadvantage because you're playing without either of your two best players on the floor. And that's another thing where it's like, you just need to be more adaptable than that. Like if Middleton has two fouls, first of all, I don't think you should ever be pulling a guy with two fouls in the first quarter. You should stick to your regular substitution patterns. You know who played with five fouls down the stretch recently? Yeah, Kyle Lowry. Kyle he Lowry. had five yeah. fouls for the last six and a half minutes of the game, and so did Fred Van Vliet. Yeah. Trust your players. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. And like he has this scheduled substitution pattern with Giannis where you know he comes out of the game usually six, seven-odd minutes into the first quarter. And in that case, if you have decided that you can't keep Middleton out there with two fouls in the first quarter then Giannis needs to play the entire first quarter. You're, you're just giving minutes away when you're pulling both of those guys off of the floor. Like that is a gift to Miami that you do not need to be giving them. And that's when the Bucs started losing the rope. I mean, obviously they didn't lose the game in that first quarter. They did lose the game in that first quarter. Well, like, there you go. But that's the thing. But they, the game. They, that's when they started losing the rope was in those minutes when without Giannis or Chris Middleton on the floor. First of all, forget the matchup, okay? Even against a bad team. In the playoffs. It's the playoffs. You should never, unless it's garbage time because you're up or uh, down big and the game is already decided, you should never go even a second with both of your two best players on the bench. 
unless you've got like forced, unless you're like the 2017 Warriors where you can do that and still have like Clay and Draymond, like you know where I'm getting going with this. Like, there is no reason an average NBA team in meaningful non-garbage time minutes in the damn playoffs should ever have their two best players both sitting at the same time. And again, as you mentioned, it goes back to just this like complete unwillingness, inability to adapt on the part of Mike Budenholzer. And it is just so infuriating. And I'll say it again, that's from us who are not Bucks fans. Like I cannot imagine being a Bucks fan watching this unfold, just wanting to pull your hair out and like throw your TV out the window. I don't know where the answers lie. You know, I've seen some people throw out the theory that because the Bucks um, are the type of team that never deviate from what they do during the regular season, it's then hard to adapt and plus. Okay, fair enough. I get that from like a scheme perspective with like really in-depth X's and O's strategy. Because you stick to one rotation in in the regular season, I'm sorry, that like the human mind is complex enough that that should not preclude you from being able to adjust when you pull a guy in a game. You know, like we're not talking about really in-depth schemes here where the team has to like learn something new on the fly. It's literally, hey, Giannis, usually I'd pull you here and give you a rest. But you know what? Chris Middleton's in foul trouble. We're not going to do that. Today. Like, this is not right. a rocket science. And, and also, I mean, I agree to a certain extent that if you haven't deviated from your scheme all year, it's really du- like difficult to adapt and you're asking a lot of your players. At the same time, I mean, first of all, I think that's probably that's a pretty strong argument in favor of, hey, maybe be a little more adaptable in the regular season so you're prepared for the you know adjustments that you're going to have to make in the playoffs. But, you know, on top of that, I think if you have a team full of like really long, fast, smart defenders like the Bucks have, I, again, it comes down to trust, right? Like, do you trust your players to operate outside of your base scheme? And I, I would turn to the Raptors for an example, like those guys all came out like they they said they'd never run a box and one before at least not at the nba level when they decided to bust it out against the warriors in the finals and they were still able to execute it basically to perfection like they said the same thing when they were asked to run like the diamond and one press this season um suddenly running triangle and two like all the different weird zones that they've been asked to play kind of on the fly i think smart capable defenders can figure that stuff out and maybe there'll be a mistake here or there but in the grand scheme of things i think bashing your head against the wall and sticking with something that clearly isn't working. I, I don't know if that's the right approach either. And like, I've, I, I've defended the bucks pretty much all season. I, I still think they're good enough to win this series, but you know, if they get off to like a poor start doing what they've been doing in game three and still don't make any adjustments, like there's no excuses anymore. You know yeah, what I mean? I like that's if, if they're down big or something at halftime of game three and they're like still showing the same, unwillingness to adapt Mike Budenholzer should walk off the job and leave the leave the Disney campus immediately because he won't have that job much longer anyway Uh, to me a perfect example is the stuff about like whether Giannis guards Jimmy Butler or not okay Jimmy Butler himself and others who know the game very well have come out and said look like don't knock Giannis for this um his strength is help side defense and that's uh it, it works with Milwaukee's defensive scheme him all of a sudden guarding Jimmy Butler one-on-one throws that all off kilter. But again, to me, that kind of goes in line with what we're talking about. We're like, okay, yes, I'm not saying you completely overhaul your entire defensive scheme for an entire series and an entire game. But I do think that in the NB freaking A, okay, in the playoffs, when you've got arguably the best defender in the world, and and the most versatile defender too, like we're not talking about like, putting Rudy Gobert, you know what I mean? We're not talking about some like stilted rim protector that like can't really guard one-on-one. Like Giannis might excel as a help defender, but he's also a very capable, versatile defender. The argument that like, oh no, you can't, you can't pull him out of his help side duty and put him on Jimmy Butler one-on-one because everything falls apart. If that's the case, then to me, again, that is another argument for what we're talking about, about the fact that you need to find a way to be more adaptable over the course of a six-month season because, I'm sorry, that should never be the case. If you've got a guy like Giannis on your team and you can't put him on Jimmy Butler when you absolutely need to because no one else can stop him because it's like, well, no, if we do that, our entire defensive scheme falls apart. To me, that's a problem. I definitely see the argument for not doing it. Like, you know, for one thing, I do think it's possible, you know, Giannis just gets screened out of the play and then like you don't have him 
available really at all. He's not making an impact. I don't, I think there are a lot more ways to be impactful as a defender than just being an on-ball guy. And the fact is the Bucks also have good, like capable wing defense that can do, you know, a really good job on Jimmy Butler. It's just like their best option to do that wasn't on the floor at the end of game one. Like I, we already talked about this in the last episode. So Wait, I West Matthews, yeah. you know, but like to me, that was the more egregious decision was not having Wes Matthews out there. I don't know. Like, I agree as far as just being adaptable. I agree about, you know, look, I don't think it's right to compare Giannis to like Gobert and say, well, if you like Gobert is the defensive player of the year, you wouldn't ask him to go out there and like guard Jimmy Butler. But, you know, Giannis is not maybe not as capable, but like Giannis is very capable of serving as essentially a wing defender. Like he can guard one on one. He can guard on the perimeter. Uh, He's not a center, even though he may nominally be a big man, like he can still serve the role of like wing defenders. So I think if things get really dire, that's a decision you can make. I'm not necessarily sure that the Bucks should make it. And I don't think that's the decision that's going to ultimately sink them at the end of the day. Um, but I do think, you know, if you're getting torn apart by one guy and Giannis is like not making an impact at all, he's just standing like in the weak side corner watching it happen, then you definitely have to find a way to get him more involved in the defensive possession so that he can make an impact. And you know, there were a couple plays down the stretch of that game. Some of it was just Jimmy Butler hitting jumpers. Um, but there were a couple times when Butler got into the lane to hit these kind of like uh, little push shots. And Giannis was kind of late to help. So it's like if he's not making an impact as a help defender and you're not you know willing to put him on the other team's best perimeter scorer, then you're simply not making use of the best defender on the planet. I, I you know, obviously a lot for the Bucks to figure out and... I'd like to say that I'm you know, confident in their ability to figure it out because I did pick them to win this series in seven games. I still think that they are good enough to do that, but I think that if they do, it will be in spite of and not because of their coach. I picked the Heat to win in six, and I'm thinking that might have been too conservative. <laughs> um, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens tonight. Yeah. Let's move from a coach that we know for a fact can't get it done in the playoffs to a coach we know absolutely nothing about as a coach, and that is the NBA's newest head coach, which I cannot believe I'm saying this. It is very rare something in the NBA happens that completely blindsides us. This counts as a blindside tackle. Steve Nash is the new head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Do you have thoughts on the matter? I mean, we were talking off air about how it's almost impossible to have thoughts on this because there's just like, we don't know. No one knows what this is going to look like. Yeah, I, I my only thought is like, this is what Kevin Durant wants. Exactly. You know, obviously that's an inordinate amount of pressure on Steve Nash, but this is the star that the Nets have hitched their wagon to. And, you know, they made that decision to sort of restructure basically their whole organization around Kevin Durant, which I think is a decision that you have to make because Kevin Durant is that good. And if you have a chance to get him, you do whatever it takes. And I mean, look, if if you're just pulling a coach out of the recently retired pool of players without them having any coaching experience at all, you could certainly do a lot worse than Steve Nash, who is absolutely one of the most intelligent players to play the game. Um, like, I, I don't have a lot of doubts about his ability to bring an element of creativity, ingenuity, uh, and just general verve to that program. And I think his relationship with Durant is really important and his potential ability to like command respect from Kyrie Irving, you know, as another flashy point guard um, who certainly I think from this generation of players uh, is going to carry like a certain amount of gravitas. And I think for a team like the Nets that's built around superstars, I do think, you know, relationship building and personality management becomes a much bigger part of the equation. I think, you know, from everything you and I know about Steve Nash, I I think that he's going to excel at that element of the job um and i think you know there were a lot of people within the warriors organization have said great things about you know the the work that he did with them even though it was you know very much behind the scenes and sporadic uh he obviously used that time to build a relationship with durant and that's probably the reason he has this job now so um i mean the big question to me is like what is his sort of buy-in level going to be because it sounds like he sort of had to be talked into this this is like the nets are under the gun man like you know they're the clock is officially ticking 
on the Durant and Irving experiment. This was always going to be a bridge year without KD playing. But after the sort of disappointing year that they had, obviously, you know, it's not their fault. Things fell apart for them in the playoffs, given all the injuries they were dealing with. But it's it's certainly going to be on them to show that they can produce right away. Sean Marks is saying that uh, Steve Nash reached out to him and said he wanted to throw his, his hat oh, yeah. in the ring. Yeah, I don't know though how much i believe that and uh i'm kind of more uh with what you said that perhaps nash had to be talked into this because quite frankly it's what kevin durant wanted and that's you know look look there's an important discussion happened when the hiring was announced of the hoops black coaches uh have to jump through to get good jobs in in the NBA or a job head coaching jobs at all in the NBA and the fact that Nash was essentially just handed one without even work as an assistant coach or whatever the case may be. I'll say that without question, there should be more diverse representation and specifically black representation among NBA coaching ranks and among NBA executive ranks. No one can argue that. But in this case, I really don't think this is tied to that issue. I think as we both acknowledge, as almost everyone has acknowledged, Steve Nash has his job because Kevin Durant and by extension Kyrie Irving want him to have this job. And, and that's what this comes down to. And yeah, it'll be fascinating. I mean, look, Steve Nash saw the game and saw the floor at a level few before him ever did and few after him ever will. And so in theory, you would say like a guy who sees the floor that well and has this like genius basketball mind should see things as a coach that others don't. And that's an advantage. But you know, you can look across many different sports. Take hockey, like Wayne Gretzky saw the ice in a way, quite frankly, few athletes have ever seen, you know, their field of vision, their, you know, field of play. And it didn't translate to him being able to impart that wisdom, you know, and pass it on to players when he coached and he didn't have the greatest coaching. So like, just because Nash had that ability to see things, you know, a few steps ahead as a player, it might, it doesn't mean it'll translate as a coach. The other thing I think is really fascinating too, and, and not that I think it's anything that'll impede his ability to coach this team, but I think it's interesting, you know, Steve Nash, as we know, was like the ultimate team first guy. You know, he's been on record plenty of times about why he didn't shoot more in his career because he, he wanted to get others involved. He thinks the team operates better when more people are involved, when everyone's a threat. He's a disciple of Mike D'Antoni and Don Nelson, and, you know, making the ball work for you and making the other team chase the ball. And now he's going to be coaching a team that is unquestionably led by these two transcendent isolation scores. Right. And so again, I'm not saying that's going to impede his ability to coach them because guys can't adapt. Mike D'Antoni's coaching James Harden and Russell Westbrook, but I do think it makes for a really fascinating partnership. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think, you know, as far as the way Nash played the game, you know, the important thing to me is that he played it on the cutting edge. You know what I mean? Like he was, for the most part, stylistically ahead of the curve. And, you know, regardless of the specific things that he did as a player or just like, um, his game, I guess, as a whole, I think his basketball philosophy is one that is going to be about like invention and reinvention and staying on that cutting edge. And I think he will adapt his sort of coaching philosophy, I think, to suit the personnel that he has on hand. And I think, you know, I don't really have a lot of doubt that he'll find the best way to utilize KD and Kyrie. And, and I think, just like having those guys at his disposal will make his job a whole lot easier because I think they're at least at the offensive end, a pretty seamless basketball fit. And so as long as I think, you know, there's buy-in on the player's part and he can get everybody on the same page in a way that, I mean, it's not even really fair to say that like Kenny Atkinson wasn't able to do that this year because like that team was so just like discombobulated from the start because you know, the, the guy that they had rearranged their team to bring in didn't play. And even Kyrie only played 11 games. So I don't, you know, I'm not entirely sure what Atkinson was supposed to do, but uh, obviously he did something that made those guys feel he wasn't the right guy for the job. So uh, I'm guessing that they won't really have any issues with Nash on that front. It'll be fascinating to watch either way. Okay, we're going to take the break, eat exactly one chip and take a sip of Coke and shout out to anyone who understands that reference. And then we'll come back and preview the second round of the Western Conference playoffs. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. 
Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, one game in the books in the Western Conference semifinals. Clippers dominated the weary uh, Nuggets, who were only 48 hours removed from a grind of a Game 7. And Kawhi just dominates Game 1, gets to his spots. Nuggets can't stop him. The game's essentially over by midway through the second quarter. So I don't think there's really much to break down from that game one. Uh, But we can maybe talk about where we think that series is going. And uh, maybe more importantly, talk about where we think Rockets-Lakers is going, which tips Friday night. Uh, We put up our second round preview yesterday, a couple days ago. I don't remember now. Um, Today, I don't know. I I think I had Clippers and Lakers both in five. I think you might have had Lakers in seven or six. I went, yeah, Lakers in seven. Wow, and okay. So, okay, um, let's talk about that then. Why you think the Rockets will give the Lakers a run for their money? I just don't, as much as the Lakers offense did finally break out against the Blazers, like that really egregiously awful Blazers defense, I'm still not totally sold on it. And I've been really impressed with the way the Rockets have defended in the bubble. And I know like they're playing the Thunder who are not like, you know, the world's greatest offense, but the fact that the Rockets had the best defensive rating of any team in the first round, um, just how effective that switching scheme is in the playoffs. And it's, you know, the Lakers are better positioned to take advantage of that switching certainly than the Thunder were. And I actually said in our preview, like I, I think the Rockets should maybe try to be a little bit less switchy in this series because I think getting out of their base matchups is going to create some problems for them, you know, because of outside of PJ Tucker, I just don't know, like, you know, and and Covington, I guess, can do it in spots too. But like, who else can really handle that LeBron matchup and not force their defense to panic and overreact? Like, you know, I think if if they want to have any hope of kind of holding LeBron in check in single coverage, I, I almost feel like conceding easy switches when they don't have to would be a mistake. But also, like, it just so much is going to depend on, like, what the Lakers shooters can do because the Rockets do a really, really good job of helping. Like, they always have guys stunting into the lane, swiping at the ball. They create a ton of turnovers. And if the Lakers role players aren't hitting their shots, I think it's actually going to make things really difficult for LeBron and AD because they're just, like, not going to have a ton of space to work. In spite of, you know, the size advantage that Davis ostensibly has over the Rockets' front court. I think the way that the Rockets are able to help and recover can still make things difficult on him. And then at the other end of the floor, I don't know. I mean, are are those Lakers guards going to be able to defend Harden and Westbrook? That's that's still a big question to me. The, the Rockets still have a big math advantage because the Lakers are, you know, one of the lowest three-point shooting rate teams in the league. Um, and the Rockets obviously are the highest. So a big discrepancy there. The Lakers make up for that because they score a ton inside. And that is an option that's going to be available to them because of the Rockets' lack of rim protection. But the Rockets' rim protection is essentially, you know, their switching perimeter defense. Like, they prevent people from scoring at the rim by essentially preventing guys from getting there in the first place. And doing that against, you know, LeBron is going to be a much different ask than doing it against Chris Paul. But uh, I I think that they are good enough to really push this Lakers team. And, yeah, ultimately I had the Lakers coming out of it, but I certainly don't think it's going to be a cakewalk. I think um, it'll be interesting to see how much of this series AD spends as the lone big on the floor. I mean, we've talked about before. We both wrote about it in that preview. The Lakers' optimal lineups and, and their best, their ceiling is with AD at five, at the five, at center. He's always been reluctant to do it. Maybe Frank Vogel's been reluctant to go to it because, you know, the two big lineup has worked for them all year. I just think in this series, it makes too much sense. A, who are Dwight Howard and or JaVel McGee going to guard? And also, they're just going to, like... It, it's kind of a nightmare to have them out there against this Rockets lineup. And B, you know, usually even if you have one kind of traditional big on the floor against the Rockets, there's some matchup issues there, at least mobility-wise on the defensive end. Anthony Davis is the guy who, like, he can punish the Rockets' size on the offensive end, and you know you're not losing uh, any sort of mobility on the defensive end, so there's nothing to worry about. Like, it's just It makes too much sense for him to be the lone big man on the floor for the Lakers, for the Lakers to use their most optimized lineups, and for that to work and for the Lakers to look great 
maybe the best they've looked all playoffs. But to your point, the Rockets' ability to help and recover does worry me a little bit because AD, even in these playoffs, like last week, two weeks ago, has always struggled with that extra defensive attention and when he gets doubled. And if the Rockets can just kind of junk things up a bit, PJ Tucker, despite the size disadvantage, has actually guarded AD pretty well this year in a limited sample size. Like, I don't, maybe you're right. Maybe the Rockets can give them more of a run for their money that I envision when I pick Lakers in five. But I still do think that AD at the five uh, in a in a small ball game with LeBron running the show and the Rockets not really having any advantage, like glaring advantage in this year. Like even, okay, like their backcourt. <laughs> okay, yeah. But what I was going to say is, first of all, they like Alex Caruso is still an underrated defender. Like the guy can flat out defend and the numbers bear that sure. out. The advanced yeah. metrics do too. I'm not saying he's going to shut down Harden or Westbrook, but like, I don't know. Caruso to me seems like the kind of guy that will guard, say like go Westbrook into trying to take over because Westbrook will just be so pissed that this guy's defending him well or like he can make things tough on Harden. Don't forget LeBron is always there as an option, you know, if they absolutely need him to guard one of those guys and he'll do it well in a playoff setting, especially. They can throw KCP out there for a few minutes against one of those guys. Even Rondo, who we all, we definitely acknowledge has lost many steps on the defensive end. If he's like your fourth option to just throw in and like muck things up against Russ and Harden, like that's not bad. I think the Lakers have at least enough options to throw at those guys with LeBron there as well that I don't like I don't see Harden and Westbrook just absolutely feasting in a series where like no one can possibly guard them. I think the Lakers at least have enough options to trouble those guys. And and so I just don't see like one glaring advantage where it's like oh man the Lakers have no answer for this. I think I think the Lakers have answers for most of what Houston wants to do. And I don't think the Rockets have anything close to an answer for LeBron or for AD at the five. One of the bigger questions I have is like what their alignment is going to look like, because I do like PJ Tucker is definitely the best option to me to guard AD, but he's also the best option to guard LeBron. Um, And I think like between Tucker and Covington, it's going to be those two guys who are the primaries on, on the two Lakers stars, but um how they match it up, I guess, is going to be. And, and honestly, because they've switched so much, it won't even end up mattering that much. But like, what is their preferred alignment? You know what I mean? Like, do they pr- do prefer to have Tucker trying to make things difficult for LeBron? Or is it more important for them to have Tucker on AD? Um, because I do think LeBron can kind of overpower Covington, right? Like, I just don't think Covington really has the strength to to keep LeBron from getting to where he wants to go. And is like uh, far better as a help defender than as a one-on-one defender. So that'll be interesting. The other thing to me is like, okay, so I agree. Like it should be AD at the five, you know, like that. Not that, you know, I don't think JaVale or Dwight Howard should play at all. Like AD can't play the entire game at the five, but that it, like that should be their closing look. Like that should be what they primarily use AD for is to play center rather than to play the four. I don't know if they'll start that way, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, how do they use him defensively? Because... I think there's an option for them to like have him guard Westbrook and that gives him an option to actually, you know, be a deterrent at the rim because if he is guarding PJ Tucker and PJ Tucker is just, you know, like standing in the strong side corner, I really think that limits what Davis can do defensively. Like it makes it a lot harder for him to pull over and help. And so I don't know, like, I mean, maybe, maybe they try and use him to guard Westbrook, which is actually like what I thought the Thunder were going to do with Steven Adams. And they didn't really ultimately do that. But I do think Westbrook coming back in that series made it a lot easier for the Thunder to have Steven Adams on the floor. AD is not Steven Adams. He's much more mobile. He's a much, much better defender. Uh, and he'll find a way to have an impact regardless. But I do think because of you know how the Rockets can spread you out and like their ability to play five out does have sort of like the ripple effect of, okay, the other team's best rim protector has to worry about somebody shooting the ball from the corner. And... Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like if, if the Rockets can kind of limit his effectiveness at the defensive end. Um, and then the other question, I guess, is so what if it's AD at the five and obviously like LeBron is on the floor as well in that alignment? How are the Lakers filling out the rest of that lineup? I mean, I'd say uh, one of Car- I mean, ideally, I think it would be Caruso, Green, LeBron, and, and then one of Kuzma or Morris, probably Kuzma. 
I don't. And, Morris to me has done like nothing for them. I don't really understand why he's been getting so much burn. But yeah, I mean, the, both Morris twins have been kind of trash in the playoffs, other than a couple cheap shots by Marcus. But um, Marcus actually had a great game last night. But uh, but but Markeith, yeah, I just I don't really see what he's given the Lakers. To me, it should be. I think Kuzma's earned a spot in that group because he he's defended far better than I thought he was capable of. And I, I actually think, you know, he outside of LeBron and AD, like he's one of the guys who can actually maybe create a bit. Yeah, he can, he can get a bucket or at least get a look. Like if like if they're bogging down and playing one on one because because of the rocket switching, then I think Kuzma is yeah. actually a guy who can bust it. So so then that's probably their optimal five in this in this matchup or in general. It's Caruso, Green, LeBron, Kuzma, AD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, they'll they'll have the option, I think, for that last guard spot to maybe just play it by ear, like whoever's yeah. playing that. Because I think KCP has been better than Green. Yeah, the well, then, then there you go. Like that's what I'm saying. Some combination of uh, between Caruso, Green, and KCP, two of those guys, and then mm-hmm. LeBron, Kuzma, AD. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, look. I, I think the Lakers are going to win, but I, I think it's going to be a close series. I think the Rockets have certain levers that they can pull uh, and ways that they can push the Lakers. And there are going to be some ugly games where like they're not hitting from three and they just get wrecked. But that's the the thing with variance is like it can swing both ways. And like if the Rockets get hot from three, then uh, they can absolutely make this a series and possibly even win it. I don't think Clippers Nuggets is going to be a close series. Yeah, I probably gave the Nuggets too much. I I, I picked Clippers in six. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, I I definitely like I was going into it thinking Clippers in five, but like I... When like I, I kind of I don't know I overthought it I think and gave the Nuggets probably too much credit but yeah you Brad Stevens did you you outcoached yourself <laughs> I I went Clippers in five and I'm almost thinking I should have gone Clippers. it might be it might be four yeah um but uh, I don't know man I like the, look the Nuggets are also just like two days removed from that really emotional Game Seven win in the that thing- barn burner against Utah so. The thing is that it's every other day from here on out. You know what I mean? It's not like they're going to get like an extra day off to kind of recharge. Like it's just going to get worse. Yeah. I don't know how much more they can do. Like I was pretty surprised how little they got out of like the Jamal Murray Jokic pick and roll in that game. And I knew going in that they were going to have no answer whatsoever for Kawhi. And that certainly bore itself out. And I don't think that's going to change. So um, if I had to pick Kawhi's numbers, like his percentages from different spots on the floor. Yeah, it's absurd, man. The guy is... I think he's most automatic as it gets. Yeah, I think he. I think he's the best player in the world right now. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah, you're probably. I think playoff Kawhi. I mean, I don't know. LeBron, LeBron's been pretty damn good at these playoffs too. I think he has. I, I, I just think LALA is going to be an epic conference finals. Let's say yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, like Kawhi's shooting is just such a. Obviously, like LeBron has the huge passing advantage. Like that's his big edge, but. The fact that Kawhi can just like basically get himself to whatever spot on the floor that he wants and like whatever spot he feels comfortable shooting from and then just hit, you know, like 55% essentially from any spot inside the arc and like essentially hit over 40% from beyond it. I don't know, man. It's, it makes the Clippers really, really difficult to stop. And so, yeah, if I was picking again, I would I would definitely pick clippers and five but we'll see i don't know man i, I still like the, the nuggets are a pretty good team and i, I think there's certain things that they can do i still think you know even though he didn't have much of a game in game one i still think Jokic has like a pretty sizable advantage that they can try and press on moving forward um but if if Jokic isn't giving them anything at the offensive end then they don't have a prayer Kawhi in the playoffs is getting to a point where he just feels inevitable you know between his ability to just get to his spots whenever he damn well wants and the automatic finishing from those spots i've mentioned it a couple times during this playoff run but healthy Kawhi has now won seven playoff series in a row he hasn't lost a playoff series in four years because even if you go back to 2017 he didn't really lose that series against the warriors he was his team was up 25 in game one when he left that series so here's a question for you given everything that's happened since then given everything Kawhi has done since then Let's say that Zaza thing doesn't happen. Because I was thinking at the time, it's like, okay, like, obviously, if that doesn't happen, the Spurs, like, almost certainly win that game one. But I still would have, like, probably picked the Warriors to win yeah. that series. Because they might have been the best team ever that year. Yeah. And yet, I don't know. Yeah, because Kawhi, know. because Kawhi's that good. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's really fun in a way to, fun unless you're a Spurs fan to think about. <laughs> uh, torturous if you're a Spurs fan. But, yeah, I mean, it feels inevitable. And... You know, the one thing I will say too is this is really shaping up well for the Clippers because 
the bubbles has just been such a grind in general for so many teams on and off the court. This postseason, even though there's no travel involved, is a different kind of marathon. There's less days off in this postseason. And now you're at a point where like we're both in agreement that the Clippers are going to take care of the Nuggets faster than the Lakers will take care of the Rockets. Plus the Clippers series started a day earlier. So even if like the Clippers finish off the the Nuggets in one game less than the Lakers finish off the Rockets, that's actually three days worth of extra rest the way it works out with the schedule. So things are starting to shape up really well. Not that like that would be the only reason the Clippers can beat the Lakers, but the more I start to think about it and even looking at the way the schedule breaks down, if the Lakers don't get through the Rockets quickly, I think they might hit a wall by the time they get to the like a, a, a more rested Clippers team. And again, obviously right now it's speculation. Who knows? Maybe the Nuggets do extend this series and give them give the Clippers you know less rest going into the conference finals. But yeah, I, I, if I was the Lakers right now or a Lakers fan, I'd be pretty concerned about the way this is starting to shape up. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've felt all along that the Clippers have the edge in that matchup. Uh, I haven't wavered for my prediction that they're going to win the title. Um, and that's that's still my feeling. I think they're they should be considered the favorite. And... I mean, you know, how the series plays out for the Lakers, I think, will tell me a lot about how competitive they're going to be able to be against the Clippers. And obviously, you know, we saw them ratchet it up against the Blazers, but it's hard to put too much stock in that as well as the Blazers were playing. Like, I've said it so many times, like that defense was just not remotely equipped to handle the Lakers. And I think that this Rockets team actually is, you know, despite the kind of size disparity in the front court. I think there's a lot of things the Rockets can do to make the Lakers uncomfortable. So yeah, I'm expecting a long, tough series and I'm excited, man. I think it's a really interesting clash of styles. All right. That just about does it for us today. But before we go, I did want to a shout out your piece um, that essentially acted as a uh, thunder postmortem a couple of days ago and, and throw to you to eulogize what was honestly a really fun, unique season in Oklahoma City. Yeah, I just wanted to shout it out because I don't know if like we're going to see this team back in its current form next year. And I just think for a team that, you know, we went into the season with the expectation that they were probably going to try and offload Chris Paul and Gallo and tank. Uh, and, and they wound up being, I think, one of the most fun teams to watch in the league. And we get this great Chris Paul season that was maybe, you know, the last great Chris Paul season. And... Uh, you know, we get that three-headed point guard lineup with Paul and Shea, Gilgis Alexander, and Dennis Schroeder. Um, really fun season from Shea, and seeing his development, I think, was awesome. He's, like, one of the most unique, interesting players to watch in the league. Schroeder, like I have said now a couple of times, I think was maybe the guy who changed my opinion of him the most in the NBA this year. Just, he he's always been like a very confident player and sometimes to his detriment, like, you know, his shot selection hasn't always been the best, but he shot the ball really well this year. He was an absolute missile getting to the basket and he defended better than I've ever seen him defend before. And like that included, you know, that first round series, spending a lot of time guarding James Harden. He was laying out for loose balls in that game seven, slapping the floor. Um, he was, you know, by far, I think their best antidote to the Rockets switching in that series like his ability to just dust guys off the dribble and get to the rim and he was really fun to watch this year and so i'm looking toward next year and it's like gallo's an unrestricted free agent uh, you know i it's hard for me to see them bringing him back i think there's probably going to be some competition for his services and then you know they tried to trade chris paul to you know reroute him to a third team after they made that trade last year and they couldn't do it because you know no other team really wanted to give up much of value to get a guy, you know, a, a six foot point guard in his mid thirties with a ton of miles on his body and an injury history and a massive contract. But now after CP had this like great prove it season and he's got one less year on his deal, I think he's going to be a lot easier to trade. And like, will that make the Thunder more inclined to trade him? Or will the fact that they've already banked these eight future first round draft picks that they got in their summer trades be a reason for them to say like, look, we're already set for the future. Why don't we just try and be as good as we can in the present? You mentioned all that and we haven't even touched on Lou Dort yet. You know, yeah, like true, it, true. it just adds to what a, what a great story it was, right? Like th- this guy was an undrafted rookie, starts the year in the G League on a two-way contract, earns himself not just a starting spot, but a multi-year contract that is already one of the biggest bargains in the NBA and maybe should get his agent fired. Lou Dort will be making $1.9 million 
three years from now. And that's a team option. The guy is uh, an absolutely elite defender. Like this is the kind of guy, if he gets enough minutes, will absolutely be in the all defensive con, like all defensive team conversation for years to come, showing off a, a little more offensive pop than anyone thought he could have. Now his three pointer comes and goes, obviously he's not a consistent threat there, but he's shown enough in his rookie year that there's definitely something to work with and build on there from an offensive standpoint. So, I mean, the Thunder might have themselves a, a young 3 and D gem here, undrafted. They, they might have that guy making less than $2 million three years from now. Yeah, and Darius Baisley, too, I thought had a, a nice series. I like haven't really loved what I've seen from him this year as a rookie. Obviously, he's one of the younger rookies in the league and was always going to need some time, but he looked a lot more polished in the playoffs than I was anticipating. I mean, the thing is, like, that's... Unless they want to like keep Schroeder around and Schroeder's only 26, you know, that's the reason that I think they might actually look to trade Chris Paul and possibly Steven Adams if they can get anything for him, like with one year left on his deal, just because what is their young talent base outside of like Shea, Lou Dort, and Baisley at this point? Like there isn't a whole lot else there. And they obviously have all those draft picks, which could turn into, you know, part of their future core. But as far as young players on the team right now, there actually isn't a whole lot. Like they were carried by their vets as much as they were by their young players this year. So uh, I think they have a really interesting offseason ahead. But yeah, Lou Dort, man, game seven, 30 points, <laughs> takes 21 shots, uh, which was more than anybody else in the game. Obviously, it's 30 points. They were also a game high. As I tweeted, if you'd have told me before game seven that between James Harden and Lou Dort, one of those guys was going to hit six threes and score 30 points, and the other guy was going to make a game-saving defensive play, I would have said, yeah, you know, that makes perfect sense. But obviously it didn't happen in the order that I expected it to. That was just honestly one of the more improbable things that I've seen happen on an NBA court. Lou Dort going for 30 in game seven. Yeah, an improbable game seven as part of, uh, as you described, a pretty improbable season in Oklahoma City. I think with that, that does it for episode two of this week. Episode 138 overall of Pound the Rock. Man. We'll be back early next week for one of two weekly episodes. And by then, um, who knows? We might have another team to eulogize. We might be, you know, looking forward to some games five, sixes, and sevens of the second round. But if the first portion of the playoffs have uh, been any indication, we will definitely have a ton to talk about when we do reconvene. So until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Picharo. Pound the Rock. 